Hello, my friends. It has been a bit of a, it's been a bit of a long time since we've been on the podcast together, Brian. Mm. Although I've been keeping it up with my little miniature solo episodes that also work as YouTube videos. Mm. Um, but what is the crack with you anyway? Yeah, you, you've been keeping them lit. Uh, yeah, we were talking about that. Like, we just had a, a run of weeks where either I wasn't available because I was away uh and then super busy after being away catching up on things and then you were unavailable um which has led us to this point where we're recording a lot earlier in the week than we usually do i'm actually mm-hmm. recording a, a back-to-back podcast just recorded with patty for two hours and now you and i are gonna do another hour here anyway that uh, like on air after what we talk about off air so mm-hmm. i'm gonna be a tired boy at the end of today uh, your brain is gonna be your brain is going to be mush by the end of this day. You'll be like, I can't, I can't speak. I can't think. I just mm. want to go to bed. I just want mm. to hold Cody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but all has been good. Um, yeah, all, all has been pretty good. I, I don't have any uh, pressing complaints or concerns. Mm. It's just, it's just been a busy time for mm. the both of us overlapping. So all good. Mm. Um what are we going to talk about today, Dean? We're going to continue the digestive series, as we've been calling it. Um, today, we're going to get more specific and talk a little bit about IBS because I suppose people, there is a, a large percentage of the population that do struggle with IBS. And you know, I think it's it's good to have a little bit of a chat about it. And as we were saying, like literally just off air, there is a lot of um, myths and misinformation around IBS and mm. digestive health overall, some of which we, we would have briefly touched on in the last podcast. But you're also doing a course at the moment around um, some of this stuff as well. So it'd be good to kind of get some of your expertise that you have acquired from from doing this new course and then obviously we, we we're, we're going to talk about like stuff that we do with clients that um struggle with some of these issues but i suppose a good place to start is what the hell is abs yeah sure thing um like in terms of like you said it's it's pretty it's fairly common uh they estimate between eight and 15 percent of the population worldwide have IBS, but they also think that it's very much underdiagnosed. Um, it's a good deal more common in women than it is in men. Now, again, that, that could be down to some just women are more likely to actually seek help with something like this, where men may be less inclined to do so. So it could be some like, like it's generally underdiagnosed anyway, but then, you know, you have this other issue that, that women are more likely to seek help. Um, it's more common in lower socioeconomic groups as well. And then there's, you know, higher and higher and lower degrees of, of occurrence, depending where you are in the world. Um, interestingly is like one thing I, I'm not sure people will be aware of, but it doesn't, it doesn't impact life expectancy. Um, so in one way it's not harmful. However, it does tend to detract significantly from someone's quality of life depending on, on how severe it is, basically. Um, and you can imagine different ways that they know it'll, it'll interact with someone's life. Um, 
you know, they may avoid certain events, social situations, because, you know, they're concerned about they need to run to a toilet. And definitely like kind of depressive and anxiety symptoms are associated with it, can affect people's relationships. Uh, Sick days, uh, big one, you know, it's one of the more common reasons for people taking sick days. Um, It's also like the fact that it's, it's tends to be poorly diagnosed or poorly identified. It can take a while for someone to actually be told, oh, okay, I think you actually have IBS here. Um, it's, it's challenging in that regard. Uh, and it can make people feel a bit alienated from the actual healthcare services uh, as a result. So it's, it's characterized by kind of a, a cluster of symptoms, I think, as you put it. Um, and, you know, when it comes to diagnosing IBS, it should be done by a doctor. All right, so you shouldn't be you shouldn't be diagnosed diagnosing this on your own. Um, and a large part of the diagnosis will be um, excluding other things that have overlapping symptoms. So there's a lot of conditions that could have overlapping symptoms. You got things like uh, you know certain uh, bowel cancers. You got things like uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, being Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. You've got um, yeah, like things like endometriosis, you got things like celiac, all this stuff overlaps, right? And you want to make sure it's not those things. And when you've done the, because there's no like, there's no test as such for IBS, right? It's like, okay, did we do all the tests for these other things? And that they all come back, you know, negative, basically, that, okay, you don't have all this other stuff. Um, then you're kind of left with a diagnosis of, of IBS. And it does have like certain criteria to, to meet. Um you know, for example, it's, you've got recurrent abdominal pain, um, and that can be associated with, uh, bowel movements. And it can also be associated with change in frequency of bowel movements. So, you know, how many times you're going to the bathroom, um, to have a bowel movement, and then also a change in like consistency of bowel movements. And within that, there are several types of IBS, right? So there's IBS type D, which stands for diarrhea. So that's going to trend more towards obviously loose bowel movements and diarrhea, um, you know, in a certain amount of bowel movements that somebody has. Uh, and, you know, you kind of use the, the Bristol steel chart to like line that up. It's like, all right, are you having, you know, X amount of bowel movements or, uh, you know, type uh, six and seven basically on that, which is, is very, very loose. Uh, the IBS type C is, is constipation, right? So that's obviously associated with a, a very uh, infrequent amount of bowel movements, um, relatively speaking. You can also have mixed IBS, right? So it's, just, it's a combination of both, basically, uh, at different times. Um, and then there's also an unclassified IBS where you have these kind of symptoms. They just don't fit like neatly into the other definitions that we have. So, um a doctor will will go through the process of helping you diagnose this based on the background, based on excluding other conditions, and, and that's how you land on this, uh, where you know the the abdominal pain um, is is a big one, but then you also got things like um, you know flatulence, you got things like uh, abdominal distension, plus all the and bloating, and then all the other things that I already mentioned. So that's kind of how you go about diagnosing IBS so to speak um but as I said there's no like 
there's no like one test that someone can go into the doctor and say like give me the ibs test um you have to go through this this more methodical process and you may end up landing on ibs and it can take a long time to get diagnosed unfortunately um like there's one study there that that shows the average time for diagnosis is seven years which is pretty crap like so mm. that's but that's that's essentially what we're looking at when we when we when it comes to IBS. Mm, yeah. And I think it, the, the key, like the key thing there is that it does need to be, I suppose you need to liaise with your healthcare team rather than just, you know, self-diagnosing yourself with IBS because like yeah. some, like we all experience some level of bloating or some level of flatulence, or, you know, you might eat something and it might give you diarrhea or, you know, like th- those are kind of normal things, but mm. like, I suppose it is key to, as I say, be as with your healthcare team, if you feel like, right, this, this is something that need, I need to delve into a little bit deeper. Um, and then as, as, as Brian was saying, meeting that criteria um, and, you know, I, I think it's the, the Rome criteria is, is the, yeah. The organization, um, sort of the global organization that, you know, you, you can go on their website and you can find out more information there. Uh, I think it's, it is useful to, if, if you have suspicions that this may be something that, that's affecting you, it, it's, it's good to do your own research. Yes. And the Rome, the Rome criteria is definitely a good place to start. But as I say, um, get into contact with, with your doctor and, and, and take things from there. But yeah, so I suppose like, you know, we can talk, I suppose, a little bit about some things that we may see that cause IBS flare-ups with clients, you know, because mm-hmm. we obviously, we, we, we do work with people that have IBS, like generally speaking, when it comes to IBS, you can work with a, with a nutritionist for this. If it's more specific, IBD, ulcerative colitis, um, celiac disease, Crohn's, that would probably require the care initially of a doctor or a dietitian. And they, they, they would specialize more so in that, but you can work with nutritionists the, uh, on, on IBS. And if you're, if yeah. you're interested, as I say, you can work with us on this, but I suppose what some of the common things um, that people might that, that might cause flare-ups i suppose in, in abs with people yeah so there's a lot of things and it, the point you made about is like we all experience some of these symptoms at some point to some degree right that is a really important point to make because there's definitely an over over kind of pathological pathologic i can't even say that word if it is a word but making things as be pathological where they're not um when it comes to digestive symptoms so you know, some amount of bloating is normal. You know, you eat a dodgy curry at some point, you might have diarrhea. Like it's that's that's not IBS. Um, but there are things that seem to trigger it, you know, more frequently than another thing. So there's there's kind of a short list of stuff that okay, potentially things like spicy foods, things like caffeine, things like alcohol, uh, high fat meals and kind of fatty food intakes, uh, even a lot of fried foods, stuff like that's gonna be high in fat that can cause um, IBS symptoms for a lot of people. Um, stress, 
is a, is a big one. You know, so it's not all, it's not all about like what you're putting into your body. It's like how your body's and brain is, is interacting with the world around you. So stress is a big one. And this is a, another point to make with IBS. Like IBS is not, um, how should I put this? It's not fixed in how you experience it. You know, it can get worse in some periods and it can get better in some periods. It can stay the same for a long time. So it's kind of in a state of flux to a certain extent. Um, and that's, that's quite typical, right? It's not like, you know, you're unique in this sense. If, if it changes, you know, your tolerance of, of these different ch- triggers change um, over time in response to different life circumstances, let's say. Um, but those, those are some of the biggest ones. And then, you know, kind of some of the more pioneering research when it comes to IBS is looking at this, this FODMAP, uh, these FODMAP foods and, and this low FODMAP diet um, as a way to, to manage IBS, which is you know, probably what we'll spend a decent chunk of this podcast talking about. Um, but yeah, basically to, to explain what FODMAPs are, um, they're a group of carbohydrates that you find in all sorts of foods. So I'll go through them in more detail now in a second, but in all sorts of foods that um, basically can be poorly digested or poorly absorbed. And in a lot of cases, what will happen is these foods are poorly digested in the small intestine, and then they make it into the large intestine and they undergo fermentation, which then brings about a lot of these symptoms. And one of the things like with, with IBS is like to, to a certain extent, we all, all these things don't digest well to some extent, but the situation with IBS patients is that they seem to have an enhanced response to these things. So they find they have worse symptoms as a result. There's many different kind of uh, theories as to why this might be some more likely than others, but like we don't actually know for sure. Um, but say they have enhanced visceral hypersensitivity in general. So just like just the literal cells are more sensitive to you know, changes in, uh, you know, say gas and kind of expansion uh, that result from fermentation of these foods or changes in um, kind of fluid volume in, in the digestive tract. These kind of things are what tends to, to cause these symptoms, it seems. Um, you got like enhanced kind of gut brain axis talk is another one. Um, and then maybe some maybe some less likely ones be like in a low grade inflammation. There's seems to be a role for the, the gut microbiota and the gut bacteria uh, to play in this because they're what's doing the fermentation in the gut of those foods um, that contain large amounts of FODMAP. So, you know, either these things are, uh, they're undergoing some sort of fermentation that can be fast or slow. Uh, and some of these, we all, we universally don't digest them that well, but it just depends what your response is maybe to, to see how, what kind of symptoms you get. So, uh, you know, FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, um, disaccharides, monosaccharides, polyols, which sounds kind of complicated. It's not really, you know, fermentable. We've already explained. So they make it to the large intestine and, and the bacteria there break them down for us because we can't do it ourselves. We derive some benefit from that you know, the bacteria release beneficial compounds. They do lots of things in relation to keeping us healthy, 
And, but you also get some gas produced, you know, anyone knows that that fermentation produces gas, um, which can then have different effects on someone's digestive symptoms. Um, so oligosaccharides are just, again, it depends how many basically chains of carbohydrates are linked together. Like it's not, not critical for people to, to kind of get this. Um, you know, disaccharides mean there's two sugars linked together. Uh, monosaccharides is one sugar. Um, and polyols are just a class of, uh, well, also known as sugar alcohols. They're kind of, you kind of class them as fibers, but they don't act in the exact same way as other fibers do. But basically, this is what we're looking at. This is kind of group of foods. And I know that the way I've listed them out there doesn't really give people much help, but we'll, we'll talk about them in more uh, detail, I guess, in relation to like, okay, where are these actually occurring foods? But do you want to jump in with anything there, Dean? Or- yeah. No, oh, like I, I think that explanation was good. I suppose the, the the summary is that these FODMAPs are in your food, right? And they're in different um, quantities and, and different types of food and higher and lower. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But the way I like to explain this to people as it relates to both people in general, but also people that have IBS is usually there's like a threshold that we cross with regards to digestive issues. So like maybe you could have like some high polyol rich foods, like you have a protein bar and a can of monster and like maybe a bit of caffeine, a little bit of spicy food and your digestive system handles that okay. But let's say, for example, you mix in a really stressful, anxious sort of a day and then maybe an extra protein bar on top of that. And it's like, right, now you've crossed the threshold. And this is whenever you start to notice the pain or the bloating or the gas or, you know, some of these kind of things. And this is essentially, as Brian was saying, heightened in people with IBS for the reasons that he explained. But none of us, you know, like, apart from maybe a few absolute weapons of lads that have like digestive systems that are just made of like <laughs> adamantium or something like that, you know, they're just fucking just ridiculous digestive systems that can handle all sorts of damage and, and punishment. Um, but most of us will typically, we will have a threshold by which, right, okay, our digestive system is like, nah, can't, can't deal with this anymore, mate. <laughs> you've, you've, you've wrecked me today. Like, um, yeah. and as I say, there's all these contributing factors, like the, the as Brian was saying earlier, the, the common ones are the, the caffeine, the alcohol, the spicy food, um, the very rich foods. You know, if you're, if you're throwing a lot at your digestive system, as I said, mm-hmm. with regards to the actual input of foods and, and stuff that's actually going into your mouth. And then as I say, the external, more external stuff in terms of your psychological response to things, your, your stress response, because your nervous system is obviously in control of your digestive system. And that's going to um, have large effects on your uh, gastric motility and all these different types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is all going to contribute, but yeah. So I think like um, we'll talk a little bit about some of the foods that um are high in these FODMAPs. Um, and I suppose we can, we can talk about like, you know, the general process of implementing a, uh, a low FODMAP, a low FODMAP diet, because it's not just something that you do flippantly. There's a very there's a meticulous process to this. And there's also like very specific reasons why you would do this. It's not like 
you, I think it's not a good idea to, to attempt to do this by yourself. You should do this with the guidance of a nutritionist or dietitian. Um, yeah. But yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about those higher FODMAP foods, and then we can talk about the implementation of this mm. style of, of diet. Yeah, and I want to I back up what you said there about it being a very much a dose-dependent response. That is super important to get, right? Because I think people can... You know, say, say well, uh, everything is kind of dose dependent to some extent, but you know, let's say for a celiac, it's like I eat gluten and that's bad for me, right? It's it's kind of black or black or white. Now there is a, a tolerance threshold of gluten particles, right? Technically, but basically, what you're looking at is you know, I eat some gluten, that's bad for me. It's going to trigger symptoms. This is not the same. This is not a black or white situation, right? So there's varying degrees of tolerance to portions of these foods because you know they may contain a certain amount of FODMAPs and you put it nicely in terms of crossing that threshold so it's like when you cross that threshold then you may start to experience symptoms and then you know potentially if you're consuming lots of foods that contain FODMAPs you know in in different forms then you're maybe crossing over that threshold like more and more and more or you know you're not really sure exactly what's triggering symptoms but there is like there is a, a, a threshold below which that none of these foods are an issue. Okay. So that's really important to get because I think people get kind of a bit anxious about um, food, like foods, maybe in general. And they're like, oh, I just can't eat that ever under no circumstances. And that's not really the case. Um, and like, like you said, we're going to detail the maybe the, spe- the specifics of the diet um, in a second. But basically, like the, there's a few different classes of FODMAPs you know so the, the FODMAP acronym just tells you what type of carbohydrates they are and then they also the categories also have certain names right so you got fructans you got uh, galacto-oligosaccharides also known as just GOS um, you got sorbitol mannitol uh, you've got excess fructose and then you've got lactose right and I think people would be unfamiliar with nearly all of those except for lactose people probably are familiar with lactose um but basically like the different foods have more amounts of these different type of FODMAPs than others so you know for example uh, it's the fructans that are in say you know wheat products that can cause problems it's the fructans that are in garlic and onions that can make them one of the like main triggers for symptoms okay um I like there's quite a lot like Obviously, that only incorpor- that incorporates a lot of foods. But I just said, you know, wheat-based products um, is a lot of different foods. The the goss foods are mostly uh, beans, okay? Uh, beans for the most part. Things like the the polyols, which you can uh, recognize with the fact they end in ol. So you got sorbitol and mannitol. You know, they're found primarily in uh, different fruit and vegetables. Um, Again, like you can't, I can't really rattle off like every single food that contains these FODMAPs. Um, but in terms of sorbitol, it's often like stone fruits. So, you know, your things like avocados, things like um, apricots, uh, plums, nectarines, all those stone fruits, peaches, um, they're typically where you find those. Although, and then mannitol is typically like mushrooms, cauliflower, um, and then fructose. Uh, in excess is is certain fruits so things like potentially apples pears mangoes um 
those would be the main ones. Uh, honey is, is a big one for that as well. And then lactose, again, people are probably pretty, pretty familiar with that. That's going to be, you know, dairy products that are high in lactose. It's not all high in lactose. Okay. So you're talking about milk, you're talking about certain yogurts, you're talking about ice cream. However, you're not, and certain cheeses, but there's plenty of cheeses, for example, that are low in lactose, right? And things like whipped cream is low in lactose, okay? So it's not just like turfing out dairy as an entire food group because you hear that, oh, it contains FODMAPs. Um, And it's not about turfing out like fruits and vegetables because you hear that they contain FODMAPs, right? So there are a lot of foods that you can still eat. I've also only just listed the ones that uh, tend to be high in FODMAPs, but obviously leaves you with a lot of foods that are fine right and that's obviously the foods that you're going to eat uh going through the process that you know we have to outline still here but is there anything else you want to add to that thing or anything no like uh, can i can i just clarify something as well like um i think because there's a little bit of a the terminology can be a little bit different in some of this as well. So FOS, fructooligosaccharides, um, is also fructans. That's in the same classification. Um, and galactans then is the same as, as GOS. Am I, am I just correct in saying that? Um, just as, from a terminology perspective? Uh, yes, with the FOS, I'm nearly sure about the galactans. Um, mm. But I'd have to double check that. Yeah, it's just because it's it's in my notes here, and because it's it's like a lot of these, some of the nutritional terms you will see they they mean the same thing, but there's just different terminology for it. Um, but yeah, like it's I think what you said there is very very key about just because you know there is you know on a low fodmap diet you need to avoid you know, excessive amounts of fructose doesn't mean that you should be uh, eliminating all fruit from your diet because then that's obviously going to have effects on, on your, on your um, dietary variety. And we all know that that's, that's important to have, have the variety. And the same thing with, um, with the dairy products as well. Like, you know, it's, it is, there's little adjustments that you can make um, so that you don't have to completely eliminate dairy because dairy is obviously um, a fantastic uh, food group to be having in your diet because um, it's obviously it's nutrient dense. It's it's, a, it's an excellent source of um, calcium, B vitamins, and protein. Um, I was laughing at Luke's story today. Um, he had like a tower of um, protein yogurts. I think he, oh, I think he tied you on it. I don't think I he's think, yeah. like. No. He tagged you on it, like so. He's just like, yeah. It's just like dairy. Like to me, dairy is like it's a key food. When I, especially whenever I'm trying to uh, lose body fat, like it's it's such a key food. Um, and then that's obviously that's obviously from a body composition perspective, but from a general health perspective, like it is, it's it's key um, to be to to have it in your diet if you can. Um, and you know, as I said, with with regards to these lactose containing foods there there are alternatives to it like even say for example there you've got your lactose free milk your lactose free yogurt um the cheeses brian said like you know you can change your whey protein to a whey protein isolate so there's there's lots of different things that you can do there um and i think like <laughs> another consideration with this is and, and we'll, we'll talk about like the application of this in a moment but like this is really something that you do to figure out what which one of these food which one of these uh or what which group of foods basically is giving you the most bother um so you can intentionally reduce and limit those but a low fodmap diet is not something that you're like 
cursed with forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's probably one of the most important things to take away from this discussion is that it is not meant to be a permanent fixture, right? Um, so I suppose that like segues into the, the actual discussion of how to implement the diet and that will kind of become clear, but it is really, really, really important to state that first and foremost, that this is not a life sentence. And if you use this diet as a life sentence, you're, you're doing it wrong, basically. And again, this is one of the reasons why we don't necessarily want people working on this alone. It's, it can be a little bit complicated. Um, and it does benefit. It's one of these things that benefits from a lot of guidance, you know, something like fat loss. Yeah. Look, you can probably manage that yourself or at least have a good crack at it. Um, but this can be a little bit more complicated depending on where you're at. So what the, the diet looks like split into three phases. All right. Phase one is the reduction phase where, as you might guess, basically you want to pull out as much of these FODMAP foods as possible. Right. So you're basically trying to reduce, write down your overall FODMAP load in your diet, let's say, um, trying to pair that right back. And you're going to do that for a period of maybe, you know, four to six weeks. Again, it kind of depends on how your adherence is. Um, but let's say four to six weeks. And you should expect, if this is going to work for you, you should expect to see some changes in, in about a couple of weeks, um, you know, assuming you're following it pretty well. I won't say perfectly because it's, it can be hard to do perfectly. But, you know, if someone goes from eating a lot of high FODMAP foods to eating way less FODMAP foods, like, they should see a difference and it's going to have an effect. And like the success rates for this are, you know, between like 50 and 70%. So they're quite high. Um, But again, it does leave some people who won't derive a benefit from this. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, So you do this reduction phase and then phase two is the the reintroduction phase. Um, And this is where you really gather the useful information that you're looking for. So with each of these FODMAP, uh, food groups, you're going to start reintroducing foods that contain, uh, basically how you do it is like you do it in, let's say we're doing like onions, for example. So you would get a portion, small portion of onions, first of all, try that, um, you know, say it's Monday. So try that on Monday, right? Assuming you've no issues, then Tuesday, have a slightly bigger portion, right? And then again, assuming you have no issues, uh, Wednesday, have like basically a what be classed as like a, a high FODMAP portion um, and then see how you respond. Okay. Give yourself a few days to kind of relax and let everything settle down. There may be no, like assuming you've no symptoms, then after a few days of washout, it's referred to as, then you go on to the next food or food group, like FODMAP group. And you just repeat it in that way until you've essentially gone through all the different groups um, and basically each time you're, you're doing this food challenge to assess your tolerance of this specific FODMAP, basically. So what you'll generally find here is that like, you know, you might react poorly to one or two types, but the others might be fine and you can eat them in, in pretty significant quantities without any issues. So that's where you're trying to pinpoint. You're trying to figure out, okay, I know, well, sorry, I, I, I suspect that maybe one of these FODMAPs or some of these FODMAPs are causing me issues, which ones are they? That's what you're trying to figure out. And as soon as you have that figured, as soon as you have that figured out, then you move on to phase three, which is going to be um, 
basically got like going back to as inclusive a diet as possible minus those foods that you may be identified as being problematic okay and because of what i said earlier about ibs always being like a state of flux it is worth your while testing even those ones that you may have highlighted like okay you know it's 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 lactose that gives me the most problems it is still worth testing that out every now and again just to see where your tolerance is at because it can change like i said um and what you said earlier dean is, is again important to remind people of that like you know it could be a baseline of stress on a given week that pushes you over that threshold right and not have anything to do with the food as such just your tolerance that week is less right that's not uncommon at all um but basically like your ultimate goal is to have identify which foods are causing you the most problems and then eating basically all the other foods that there are to eat that's kind of what you want to end up with and you can see how that's not at all looking like i'm going to just not eat these fodmaps ever again because there are like there are consequences because a lot of these fodmap foods are rich in prebiotic fiber right so they're generally good for your digestion and you know especially they're in a lot of healthy foods you know uh, fruits and vegetables and beans and dairy products and things so you don't want to miss out on the nutrition that those foods can provide for no reason yeah yeah like it is key to still keep variety as the long-term goal you know as 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 inclusive of a diet as possible you know what once you sort of identified that okay i have a fairly good idea that these particular list of foods are giving me issue um but that, and that's why it's really important that, 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 that we do this rather than sort of saying right i have abs all the fodmaps wreck me you know and then you're yeah. there's actually a list of foods that you're missing out on that don't wreck you <laughs> and that you're actually missing out on the, the the good nutrients and also the fact that you know let's say for example you have the belief that onions and garlic are, are giving you issues when they're not and then that sort of ruins the whole experience of cooking for you maybe and, and making different dishes and stuff like that um you know so there's that there's that sort of psychosocial element to this as well that's that's very very important to consider it's not just like ah it's all about making sure that you're getting these micro and macronutrients you know um so that so that's really really key um and yeah so i suppose like is there anything else that you want to talk about um specifically around fodmaps anything interesting that you've learned on the monash course um around these things where to begin with you know have i learned anything interesting it's been a very very good course um i'm like nine and a half modules done out of ten um and i expect the ten will just be like a wrap-up module but um it's been a really really good course like it's not it's not often that a course will impress me but this one has impressed me um and monash the, the people who run it like they have an app which is immensely helpful in working with someone with ibs right so Basically, any client that comes to me and wants to work on, on IBS, um, I'll say to them, you know, let's download this app because it, it simplifies a lot of the process. It makes it very easy to identify, well, more well, easier to identify foods which are high in FODMAPs, but also what portion size is classed as like, you know, they use a traffic light system. So it's like, okay, this amount of mango is a green light. So you should be able to have that. Uh, and that's no problem um then there's an amber it's like okay you're starting to get 
into higher levels, depending on your situation that might trigger symptoms if you're sensitive to the excess fructose. And then the red would be like, okay, there's a high FODMAP portion. So if you are sensitive to this, you will likely see a reaction. Um, so, you know, it's not a, it's not a, like, it's not as complete a database, something like my fitness pile, not everything is in there. Um, but it does help quite a lot. And again, that's one of the reasons why it's helpful to have a professional work with you on this too, because, you know, you, you want someone there to answer the questions that you have. It's like, well, what about whey protein? Like, how, where does that fit in? For example, there's been a lot of examples that have come up um, that is just not clear from just using the app on your own as to what the answer might be. Um, but it is hugely, hugely valuable. Um, and it's very, very useful for the, the reintroduction phase as well. You know, it details how to do that kind of step-by-step. Um, which again is a really nice adjunct to have um, if you're working with somebody on this. So, I mean, like I said, I could I could talk for a long time about the interesting things uh, I've learned on that course, and we actually don't have time to do that. But um, I think I think maybe spending some time talking about things that aren't food related that can play a role here. Uh, we've alluded to some of them, but you know, basically there are adjunct therapies other than like dietary manipulation that can be helpful so you can look at like other dietary types which would uh, encompass some of the things that we mentioned at the start about like okay what are the typical triggers here so you know you could potentially try something like a low fat diet but or say a low caffeine diet or diet low in spicy foods all these sort of things however the low FODMAP approach is, is the one that's by far the most clinically backed so that is the better one to go for and then it'd be more of a case like all right if we haven't seen a satisfactory result from that then maybe we look at other things um but we have to also consider that like if someone's baseline uh trigger could be stressful situations it's like well what are you actually doing about that like are you actually looking to try and address the stress in your life um because if you're not, you know, stress is one example, um, you know, you kind of your kind of psychological wellness and mental health play into this too. Um, so that's where things like, you know, CBT uh, has shown to be quite beneficial um, in MyBS. Um, I suppose the like, supplementation comes into this category as well. You can look at like probiotics, uh, you know, they have like I said this on the podcast with Patty last week when we were talking about digestion, I think telling, so this is how I phrase it, like telling someone to take a probiotic for their, their digestion is like telling someone to eat food for their digestion. It's like, well, what do you actually mean specifically? Because there are just so many different types of probiotics um, out there and they do different things and they're not all the same. So it's they're not like- very hard to spell. The bacteria yeah. is very hard to spell. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly uh so that that like you can't just say like oh i'm gonna take a probiotic because like all right what what symptoms are you trying to address specifically which probiotic are you going to take is it one that's clinically backed or is it just one that's on the shelf when you go into a shop to buy one so there are many many different options um and you know they have like i'd say a good degree of efficacy but, um not amazing in most cases so it's rare, I think, that you would just take a probiotic and that solves all your problems, but it definitely help, especially if your uh, IBS is, is on the milder side. Um, 
but yeah, there's just so many different options there depending on what you're actually looking for. Um, but it is a useful adjunct, I think. Uh, in addition to dietary therapy, you know, there's obviously uh, pharmacological approaches to this as well. You know, again, if it's like a mental health link, then things like anxiolytics and antidepressants maybe have a role. Sometimes you'll see practitioners um, kind of taking advantage of the side effects of certain medic medications. Like I think amitriptyline, for example, can cause constipation. So it's like, all right, well, if this person is like, yes, type D and, you know, their mental health isn't that good, can they potentially take amitriptyline and that will, you know, have a, uh, an effect on, on the diarrhea, for example. So there's different ways that it can be managed outside of maybe just looking at someone's diet. But I think the most important one to look at there is like the psychological element, the stress element, because that will play a big part. And as we've discussed a few times in this podcast, it's like, you know, that'll improve maybe your baseline tolerance. So you might find that, okay, I get good results when I don't eat polyols. However, if I then undergo like improvements to my mental health, um, then maybe to find that you can tolerate them in higher quantities and your diet is slightly more inclusive. So I, I, I think we're getting that point across pretty well. Um, but just to kind of keep saying it, that um, it's, it's something that's kind of fluctuating and it's not static. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Outside, outside of the actual nutritional stuff, there's the stress and anxiety, as I say, is, is, is the key consideration and that's generally where people see very large improvements um in, in in a lot of this type of stuff that's not necessarily related to what's going into their mouth hole um and then another one there just uh, because i think it's worth mentioning is exercise is it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because if you say take something like yoga for example that is that is shown to be to have a large degree of efficacy with with people with, with abs um but then if you take something like maybe running where the impact and the actual stress response from say running or high intensity running and the jostling of the gut can actually create more issues for people with abs so exercise can be you know overall generally good for people with abs yeah. but you would need to sort of um take into consideration uh the effects that it might have and i think maybe like like we could do another we could do a third part to this where i could talk about the specific digestive considerations around sport and, and uh, athletes and stuff like that but mm. generally speaking i think you know their exercise overall good idea yoga probably seems to be Yoga Pilates probably seems to be one of the more, uh, some of the more effective um, for people with ABS, um, especially like, you know, if you can combine yoga with like a, a meditation practice, you know, that, that, that might be come, that might be uh, come along with that, uh, which stress reduction, et cetera. Uh, so these can all be useful. But again, if you're a bit of a runner um, or not a bit of a runner, if you are a runner, <laughs> if you run um, or if you do kind of high impact sports or anything like that. Um, and also the consideration of right, the stress response that you may receive from exercise. Uh, this is also, again, a consideration to, to have around, around ABS. Um, but yeah, so I suppose we can wrap up a little bit by wrap up by talking about maybe 
some supplementation considerations. I know there's not really, you, you did mention probiotics there. There's not really a whole pile um, that can be done around this part from kind of the, 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 the bog standard recommendations that, that can be kind of inserted into general health um, as it relates to supplementation. But um, yeah, do you want to take the lead on this one? Yeah, um, I suppose we could also use this as an opportunity to clear up or at least try and clear up some misconceptions about what things maybe don't really have a role to play here. So mm. um, or maybe not that they don't, but like the considerations, like say for something like fiber, right? Some people might blanketly assume that fiber will make their digestion worse depending on what kind of symptoms they're experiencing and it can and that's because like fiber is not just a universal thing either you know fiber is you know it depends is it soluble or insoluble fiber you know where where soluble fiber is concerned it nearly always has a about or yeah stool improving effect you know which whatever you need really from in terms of your bowel movements and your stool consistency like soluble fiber can help so you know, if you tend to have more loose bowel movements, it can, it can help kind of harden them up and, and get better consistency. But also if you have, if you're prone to constipation and it can also have like a softening effect. So it's quite interesting in that regard. Um, but something like insoluble fiber that's also rapidly fermented is probably going to make your symptoms worse. So that, an example of that would be something like wheat bran. Um, whereas something that's, in, that's soluble and uh, slowly fermented which an example of that one that's used a lot is psyllium husk, right? That can generally be quite beneficial. Um, and I know we, we talked a lot about fiber the last episode, so I suppose I don't need to, to belabor it too much, but um, modifications to fiber intake can definitely help with this. Um, and, you know, it, it depends on the type of fiber you're having and it depends where your current fiber intake is, you know, like what way should you modify it? Um, one thing that's not, doesn't really seem to be, uh, worth talking about right now is non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which I think would be one of the main misconceptions people might have. It's like, you know, okay, gluten is the problem because they get told all sorts of things about gluten. However, first of all, the research on on non-celiac gluten sensitivity isn't like, it doesn't clearly show that like, that this actually happens and, you know, there is some debate about whether it even exists or not. Um, and some of the, the first studies on, on this, you know, when they kind of delved into it further, they discovered, oh, okay, actually this seems like it was more of a response to the fructans and the wheat than it was about the gluten. So basically like where I would say gluten fits into this is um, basically if you've tried, say, a low FODMAP approach and you haven't seen like satisfactory results, um, you could probably try a, a gluten-free diet for a period of time as well to see um, what happens with that. Now, naturally, like if you're doing a low FODMAP diet and you're eating wheat products, your gluten intake is probably going to drop drop off quite a lot anyway. Um, but what you're trying to get people away from here is just unnecessarily pulling foods out of their diet, you know, um, because that, you know, has uh, consequences potentially. Um mm-hmm. You know, there's sorry, go on. No, I was just gonna say so. So, basically, what you're saying is non celiac gluten sensitivity is like the Loch Ness monster or Bigfoot. 
it's we're not a hundred percent sure whether it exists or not. It's it's like a mirage. Yeah, like it's it's kind of your. I don't I don't want to like knock it completely as a, as an approach, but you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. Mm. Now it's not to say that, that nobody out there has a sensitivity to gluten, but I'm just saying that like it shouldn't because you know yourself, Dean, that like gluten is often portrayed as this bad guy when it comes to digestive symptoms, especially mm. in alternate an alternative um, alternative approaches, alternative health practices, medicines, whatever you want to call it. So just to keep that in mind that like you know basically we don't because there's some people out there would say like you know basically nobody should eat gluten because it's harmful. Yeah. Um, so it's basically just to kind of warn people against that. Um, but yeah, that, sorry, was, I was supposed to talk about supplementation. Um, so we talk about probiotics. They potentially have a role to play. Again, it's like specificity though, because it's not just like taking a random probiotic is necessarily going to help. Uh, it seems that in IBS context, uh, the like shotgun approach, i.e. like high dose probiotics, lots of different strains is no better than more of a sharpshooter approach, like, you know, one strain probiotic um, and kind of relatively low doses. It doesn't seem to be any benefit either way there. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. If you're going to try a probiotic, you need to give it about four weeks uh, before deciding if it's had like an effect or not. So it's not like you take it for a few days and you expect to see a major difference. Give, if you're going to try a probiotic, give it four weeks um and then you know assess where you're at obviously this depends what else you're doing but assess where you're at decide if you need to maybe try a different one or continue with that same one if you've, if you've seen a, a decent amount of alleviation of your symptoms um i think digestive enzymes not necessarily in an ibs context that's more like a general uh general digestive health context uh, but i can't remember if we mentioned them in the last podcast or not so i'm going to mention them here um you know, there's not much like in terms of supplementation, like uh, peppermint oil can have kind of a soothing effect on, on the gut and acts like an antispasmodic. Um, so it helps kind of calm things down a little bit in the digestive tract. Um, so you can get enterically coated uh, peppermint oil, which basically survives digestion and releases where it's actually needed. So I think culpermin is the um kind of pharmaceutical option that i didn't get that in like pharmacies and things there's one i did come across through the uh you know through studying the course uh called iberogast i think it's also called stw5 um which is basically a it's a collection of like nine plant botanicals which if if someone is looking for something that has going to have like a rapid effect on say calming down soothing the gut it works quite quite quickly, like within 30 minutes or so, um, and seems to have a good evidence base behind it. Now, I don't actually know if you can get it easily here. Uh, I had a quick look uh, at the time and I didn't see any obvious ways of like, oh, can I just go online and just buy this? So it seems to be helpful, but that's what I find with a lot of these, uh, in a lot of these digestive contexts and the stuff that's been studied and well-researched, say like different strains of probiotic, it's like, okay, where can I actually get this? I can't. It's like, all right, sound. Like, mm. you know, there, there is a bit of, it does lack sometimes. Um, mm. You, you can get a beer on 
from the States, if okay. uh, that seems to be in my, in my own research, it seems to come up on the US Amazon, but it doesn't ah, okay. come up on the, the, the UK Amazon. So it's, it's kind of like a lot of the, I, th- I think because the, um, the rules and regulations around supplements are more lax over in the States, you know, you can yeah. readily get a lot more stuff that's, you know, maybe considered gray area or, you know, stuff like this basically um so i i actually in my own research i, I couldn't figure out how to get it here um because yeah. i was looking at it, looking about it um for a client and i couldn't figure it out but i did see it on the amazon us um right page yeah yeah which is kind of a shame um because like it does seem to be pretty effective um but then if people can't access it then it's not very useful. Um, I don't know. Is there much else to add, Dean? No. Um, I think we've we've covered uh, plenty of different aspects of this. Um, I think, like you know, as you say, there's lots of different little threads to pull on. Um, there's lots of different routes to go down with this. As I say, like you know it is very much a case of experimentation if you're dealing with this um like 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 many things that we do we don't just sort of like right here's like 50 different things and let's just see what happens it's more a case of right like let's follow some clues here and and take a sort of a a curious sort of approach uh as if you are a scientist running experiments on yourself um and obviously like with regards to like the exercise and um trying to avoid the uh the typical triggers like a lot of caffeine and spicy food and alcohol like all that stuff's like yeah you can basically i think we can all agree that it's probably a good idea to not overload ourselves with that whether we have abs or not but when it comes to more specific stuff that you may have heard here you know, as I say, apart from maybe the FODMAP stuff, do a little bit of trial and error and kind of see how you're, how you're getting on. Um, and, you know, if you feel like, right, okay, you have the problem, you have an actual diagnosis from the doctor, maybe you're kind of getting nowhere after that and you feel like, right, maybe a FODMAP, a low FODMAP style diet implementation of that would be good. Get in contact with us. Like Brian is, um, as I say, He's just after, or is just about to complete a course and all this stuff. Um, and I suppose that's going to be one of the best things to do if you feel like you benefit from this um, yeah. approach. Yeah, guys, just like, you know, there's a certain amount of, you know, maybe benefits trying to go it alone. Um, but if you consider, like, is this stuff causing you a lot of stress day to day potentially, or is it taking a lot of headspace? You know, is it better idea just to get a professional, have someone help you put a plan in place that knows exactly what they're doing and basically fast track the process of getting to it, getting you to where you want to be. Um, there's obviously a lot of value to be, to be gained from that. Um, so yeah, look, if you, if you have issues with this stuff, you know, you, you know, both the both of us have worked with people uh, with a lot of success, success on these with these issues. Um, and I, got, I have a guy who 
how do I be so bad that he took a year off school uh, when he was a teenager, which and now like you know symptoms are very well managed. Um, so that's the kind of difference it can make, you know, uh, if you if you're dealing with this stuff. I'd I'd encourage people not to go it alone for too long before deciding like enough is enough. And I understand like not everyone's in a position to avail of coaching. That's also fair. Um, but I don't want to be ignorant to that. But if you are in a position to potentially avail of coaching and you want to turn this stuff around, I would just encourage people to get in touch sooner rather than later. Yeah. That's probably a good closing remark. Um, I will leave the links for everything in the description. Um, the room criteria, uh, anything else relevant that we talked about here today. Uh, links for coaching, as I say, links for our Instagrams on the triage Instagram as well. If you want to even just have a chat with us, um, we always like to hear from you guys. Um, but yeah, have you anything to add before we sign off, Brian? No, I don't think so. Just I hope that the uh, this two part series has been helpful for people, um, in relation to. Uh, digestion and if if you like this podcast at all we'd really appreciate if you shared it around tell people about it um because obviously if you can benefit from it then probably a lot of other people can benefit from it the only way other people can benefit from it is if the word gets out there that you know brian and dean actually do good podcasts so um any sort of anything you can do in that regard if there's wherever you're listening to this you can leave a review uh, share it on your social media, send it to people who might be interested. Uh, that stuff actually does matter and make a difference to us. It's not kind of a take it or leave it thing. That stuff will actively help us. So if you appreciate the fact that myself and Dean spend hours, you know, actually doing these podcasts and putting out this good free information, you know, you can help us and say thank you by sharing it around. Yeah. And it's much appreciated, guys. Um, yes. Thank you for your listenership. We'll catch you guys in the next one. Peace.